the old pilot's plane tales. Larry, we're going down. On the west side of the Potomac River, at the confluence of the Anacostia River in Washington, D.C., lies the Ronald Reagan Washington National Airport. I've never operated into it, but Captain Jeff assures me that on a clear sunny day, the river visual approach, which traces the path of the river down the Potomac, passing over historic bridges, thought-provoking memorials, and the iconic buildings of government, will be one of his most treasured memories when he eventually hangs up his captain's hat. A few days ago was the 13th of January, and 35 years ago, in 1982, the weather there was anything but clear and sunny. Washington was gripped in a severe snowstorm. In the morning, a six-and-a-half-inch snowfall had closed the airport, but around noon things improved slightly, and an Air Florida 737 got airborne from Miami, bound for Washington National. Under marginal conditions at 1.45pm, Palm 95 landed. At the controls was Captain Larry Wheaton. He had been hired by Air Florida, a recent start-up company following the Deregulation Act of 1978, and had done two years in the right seat before being promoted to captain. His fellow pilots thought of him as a quiet person with good flying skills and knowledge who operated well in the high workload environment of airline flying. However, not long after gaining his fourth stripe, he failed a company line check for poor adherence to regulations, checklist usage and flight procedures. He passed his ride on the second attempt, but the following year he failed again, this time for poor systems and limitations knowledge. Again, he passed on his retest. When he took his aircraft into Washington that day, he was 34 years old and had been a captain for two years. Beside him was his 31-year-old first officer who was flying the next leg. Roger Pittet was an ex-Air Force F-15 pilot who had some 650 hours as a flight examiner, instructor pilot, and had been a ground instructor. Witty, bright and outgoing, he had nearly 1,000 hours with Air Florida, taking his total flying experience to over 3,000 hours, but he had only worked in cold conditions a couple of times with his current outfit. His captain had over 8,000 hours, but had only experienced winter operations eight times in his career. As they turned the aircraft around for the flight into Tampa, I'm sure they were looking forward to getting into the warmer air of their final destination, Fort Lauderdale in Florida. The conditions were still poor in Washington, though, with a temperature of minus 5 degrees centigrade. For those still living in a previous century, that's 23 degrees Fahrenheit. The visibility was only half a mile in moderate snow showers, and the cloud ceiling was 400 feet. Seventy-four passengers had embarked, and with a crew of five, the aircraft, now called Palm 90, was ready for departure. The captain had started to have his aircraft de-iced, but the airfield closed again whilst the main runway was swept of snow. With only a part of the left side done, Wheaton stopped the de-icing crew when he realised that it would be some time before he could get going. Some twenty-five minutes later, he ordered the process to recommence. 
His aircraft was cleaned with hot water and then treated with glycol and water mixed. With his de-ice complete, it was his duty to get out of his seat and check his aircraft was clear of snow and ice, but Wheaton asked his airline station manager, standing by the aircraft door, what it looked like. He was told that there was just a light dusting of snow from the engine to the wingtip. Apparently satisfied, he closed up and Palm 90 requested pushback. His clearance was delayed as there was plenty of traffic around, so it took almost 15 minutes to get permission to move and then they discovered that, with several inches of wet snow on the ground, the tug couldn't get traction. The flight crew decided that some reverse thrust might help, so disregarding Boeing's advice and their company's regulations against such action, they started both engines and engaged the reverses. Snow blew up around the wings and engines in clouds, but it didn't help, and they gave up, requesting a larger tug to assist. All the while, more snow fell from the sky. The second tug got them going successfully and they were soon completing their after-start checks. But with words that should send a chill down the back of any pilot listening to this, they finished with engine anti-ice off. The Pratt & Whitney JT-8D engine anti-ice system ensured that those components susceptible to icing, the intakes, fan blades and the pressure sensing probes, were heated. Why Captain Wheaton and First Officer Pittet neglected to turn it on is a question that has puzzled pilots throughout the decades since. On the taxi out, the conversation between the pilots appeared light-hearted, but held an underlying concern. They fell in behind a DC-9. Pittet mentioned that it had been a long time since they de-iced, and Wheaton replied, referring to the jet exhaust from the aircraft ahead, that at least his windshield would be de-iced. Don't know about the wings, though, he said. They continued in the same vein, commenting quite erroneously that all they needed was for the inner part of the wings to be clean and that all the other stuff they could see would shuck off during takeoff. Ignoring the requirements to have the wings completely clear of contamination for takeoff, they were already noting between a quarter and a half an inch of snow on theirs. They closed up to the aircraft ahead, apparently thinking that the warm air would help, but not realising that the melted snow would just refreeze as ice, which would definitely not blow off during takeoff. Their concerns continued, and they noted a variation in their engine instruments, and commented that it was a losing battle trying to de-ice, and that the procedure was just there to give them a false feeling of security. The first officer asked for some advice on takeoff techniques on a slush-covered runway, but nothing was forthcoming from his captain. Indeed, they had not briefed or discussed any of the multitude of threats that faced them on that wintry day. Finally cleared for takeoff, they lined up and set the engine power they needed. Their lack of knowledge, their lack of discipline, their lack of experience, and their lack of clear decision-making was about to teach everyone in the industry lessons that we have learned and referred to ever since. The conversation during the takeoff tells it all. Real, real cold. God, look at that thing. That doesn't seem right, does it? 
that's not right. Yes, it is. There's eighty, as the ASI started to read. No, I don't think that's right. Maybe it is. I don't know. What was concerning them was their acceleration rate. It had taken them 45 seconds to get to rotate speed instead of the normal 30. When the first officer pitched the aircraft, its nose came up fast, causing the captain to say, Easy! The handling problems were due to the ice adhering to the leading edges of the wings, a known 737 tray. They lifted off a long way down the runway, but within seconds, as they climbed out of ground effect, the stall warning began to vibrate their control columns. With the rattling stick shaker in the background, the CVR recorded their last words. Forward, forward, easy. Come on, forward, just barely climb. Stalling, we're falling. Larry, we're going down. Larry, I know it. The next noise was the sound of impact. Two major factors brought them down. The aircraft's leading edges of the wings were covered in ice and snow, which raised their stalling speed, but they would probably have got away with that had they had full power coming from the engines. By failing to turn on the engine anti-ice, the pressure probes within the engines that they used to set power for takeoff had iced up. The clues were all there on the rest of the engine instruments. Indeed, this was a problem that several other crews in other airlines had successfully dealt with by stopping their takeoff. What's more, had either of the pilots advanced the throttles to full power, within even eight or ten seconds of impact, they would have survived. The tail of the aircraft struck the 14th Street Bridge, and then it continued on into the ice-covered Potomac only two miles from the White House. Six cars and a truck were in the path and the disintegrating airliner crashed and killed four motorists, injuring three others. Inside the aircraft, 73 were killed by the impact or shortly after, including three infants and both pilots. One passenger died in the water in very sad circumstances shortly after. The rescue of the few survivors would be worth an entire story on its own. The roads were nearly impassable with traffic and snow. The airport airboat was available but had never been tested on ice. The DC fireboat and police boats were not able to break ice in order to reach the accident in time. Of the Arlington Fire and Police, U.S. Park Police, D.C. Fire and Police, Fairfax Fire and Alexandria Fire Units that were able to respond, none were properly equipped to perform rescue operations in the icy river. Desperately holding onto the tail section, which stuck partly out of the water, were the five surviving passengers and a flight attendant. They would wallow in the fuel-contaminated freezing water for over 30 minutes waiting for rescue. Without proper equipment or the wherewithal to improvise, the emergency services watched on from the river banks, only feet away. From this nightmare, a few heroes emerged. Roger Ollian, a sheet metal foreman, jumped in to try to swim to the survivors. He couldn't get past the ice, but after tying a tow rope around himself, tried again, but still the ice was too hard to get through. All he could do was shout to hold on. 
The US Park Police Bell 206 helicopter arrived, but it had no winching gear. They lowered a line to tow the survivors ashore. Bert Hamilton was treading water and he was the first. Then they dropped the line to a man on the tail, who immediately passed it to Kelly Duncan, who was also rescued. Now with two lines attached, they returned to the tail. Again the man passed the ropes on to others, so now Joe Stilly, holding Priscilla Tirado, who had been blinded by jet fuel, grabbed one, and Nicky Felch took the other. As they were dragged along, both Priscilla and Nicky lost their grip, both too weak and cold to hold on again, another passer-by, Lenny Skutnik stripped off and swam out to help Priscilla, pulling her to the bank. In the helicopter, the paramedic climbed out onto the skid and grabbed Nicky's clothes and held onto her while she was dragged ashore. The only remaining survivor was the man on the tail, who had selflessly passed the rescue ropes to his fellow passengers. The wreckage sank, dragging him into the river. His was the last death recorded. The lessons the industry took from this one accident improved pilot training enormously as well as human factors, particularly in the areas of self-deception and assertiveness. Also, the composition and quality of de-icing fluids, as well as regulations ensuring their delivery and the calculation of how long they remain effective, were improved following proper scientific studies. The FAA also started paying more attention to the safety of low-cost carriers and startup airlines. One final legacy of this awful accident remains. The brave man who died entangled with the sinking wreckage was later identified as a 46-year-old bank examiner. The repaired span of the 14th Street Bridge, previously called the Rochambeau Bridge, was named for him in his honour, the Arland D. Williams Jr. Memorial Bridge.